Welcome to Prayo's Peace in a Pod. My name is Indigo Trichauger, and I'm a communicator at the Peace Research Institute, Oslo. My job here is to help researchers convey their work. Usually that means talking to the media, politicians, other stakeholders, and colleagues. With this podcast, that means talking to you. Today marks the 10th anniversary of the bombing of the Oslo government quarter and the massacre on Utøya by terrorists on the Spedding Brevik. On the 22nd of July, 2011, 77 people died, many more were injured and traumatized, and the effects of that event are still being felt today. A couple weeks ago in podcast episode 49, I spoke with Sissel Hagdol-Jure and Kristen Bagtore-Sandvik about how the aftermath of the bombing in Oslo has played out and what it means for security in the Norwegian capital. This week, Kristen Sandvik and researcher Ingeborg Jort talk about the memorial at Utøya and the controversy iterations of it have generated. They also illuminate how the ripple effects of a tragedy like this make waves in such a small country as Norway. Kristen Bagtore-Sandvik is research professor at Prio and a professor at the Faculty of Law, University of Oslo, where she teaches sociology of law, legal anthropology, legal technology, and artificial intelligence and robot regulations. She currently leads the RCN-funded project Law 22 July, Ripples, Rights, Institutions, Procedures, Participation, Litigation, Embedding Security, at the Faculty of Law with Prio as a key partner. Ingeborg Jort is head of research at the Falstadsenthet, or Falstadsenthet. She has a PhD from the Norwegian University of Science and Technology. In her thesis and in several scientific articles, she studied the national memorial process after 22nd of July from different angles. Jort also has wide experience as a leader and participant in several exhibition projects. In 2015, she contributed to the development of the 22nd of July Center, Schoenderi Juli Centre, in Oslo. Welcome to the podcast, Kristen and Ingeborg. Today we're going to be discussing a project that has to do with the 22nd of July uh, terror attack, and this is very timely as uh, it's coming up on the 10-year anniversary. Um, So to start with, Kristen, you can just maybe give us the context of this this project that you're a part of, and um, and maybe why you felt it was so important to to do this project, and I know that you're, you're filling some very important research gaps here. Thank you, Indigo. Uh, so I'm a professor in humanitarian studies at Preo, but also in legal sociology at the University of Oslo. And during my time as a full-time researcher at Preo, I, I did long-term research in Colombia and transitional justice, and, and previously I've also worked in, in Uganda, and, and really seen sort of the aftermath of, of, of war and, and conflict and, and efforts to sort of move out of that and the use of law. Um, when I came to the University of Oslo, I realized, not quickly, but, but after a while, that I was myself teaching survivors of the 22nd of July. And, and I simply had never imagined that I would do so, and we had no teaching material, and we hadn't really thought about it. So together with good colleagues at Preo and the University, I, I founded a project, Law 22nd July, Ripples. And in Ripples, this is Ripples in English. It's sort of the ripples of, of law. But it also stands for Rights, Institutions, Procedures, Participation, Litigation, Embedding Security. And it's funded by Samrisk, by the Norwegian Research Council. But I've also been so fortunate as to be able to gather and meet other researchers doing long-term and very important work on the 22nd of July. Among them, our other guest today, Ingeborg Jort. You are head of research at Falstadsenteret. Um, and maybe you can... Just take us to the beginning. What happened right after 
July 22nd, because immediately after the attack, people started talking about memorials and and what kinds of memorials uh, spaces needed to to be made permanent. Right afterward, there were a lot of spontaneous memorials uh, mm-hmm. and places where people went to pay their respects and, and to reflect. Uh, and that was a really big part of uh, of the way that people coped, I think. But mm-hmm. what what exactly happened right afterward? Yeah, well, um, if if we go back to the to the start of the formal memorial process, that started uh, five months after the the July twenty second events. Um, uh, on December twenty second, two thousand eleven, uh, the Norwegian government announced that they had decided to establish two national memorials. Uh, one in Oslo, uh, near the site of the first attack of the terrorist in uh, the government center, and one in the municipality of Hule near uh, Utøya, where the second attack took place. Um, however, it is important to note uh, that that the idea of es- establishing uh, national memorials did not originate in the government offices. Um, this idea had been the subject of, of public discussion since. Uh, the immediate aftermath of the events, um, and as you mentioned, as as, mo- and, uh, as most uh, uh, Norwegians still remember very clearly, there was a massive uh, public response to the terror in in uh, July and early August 2011. Thousands of people took to the streets and formed uh, these spontaneous memorials um, at squares in almost every city and local community of Norway. Um, and soon, very soon, public discussion turned to the question of how these uh, spontaneous and temporary memorials um, could and should be uh, replaced by permanent public memorials. Um, hundreds of letters with uh, questions, uh, suggestions, uh, concrete proposals from the Norwegian population and artists especially poured into uh, national and local government offices. Um, so in a sense, the, the decision of the national government in December 2011 was a way of, of answering an expectation or uh, a demand even uh, from from below. So um, there was a beautiful, I think, but very controversial memorial that was planned. It was called Memory Wound. And um, originally, the plan was for the memorial to be ready in 2015, actually. Um, Now we're coming up on the 10-year anniversary, and and that has not happened. So what occurred when Memory Wound was announced? Why did this become such a controversy and very painful subject? Yeah, to to explain that, I I I think I have to go back to to the and and, and trace the process a bit because uh, the process from from uh, the moment when when the Norwegian government uh, announced their plans to to uh, establish two memorials, um, the process was organised as um, a public art project. Uh, the Ministry of Culture. Uh, gave the main responsibility for managing and organizing the process to the state art uh, agency, Kuru. Uh, Kuru then followed normal pr- procedures of, of public art projects uh, by appointing an art committee, uh, issuing an art plan, and organizing an international design competition. And in, in February 2014, uh, 
the committee, the art committee acting as a jury, announced uh, that the Swedish artist Jonas Dahlberg um, was winner of the competition. And his proposal was this memory wound uh, formed as a massive cut through the ha- headland of, uh, of uh, Sörbroten on the mainland facing Utøya. Um, for Oslo, he proposed a physically and conceptually related memorial uh, built out of the, the landmass that would be removed from Söderåten. Um, from the moment of the announcement of the winning concept, uh, the memory wound memorial was uh, subject to much debate. Um, the, the design attracted worldwide attention and both uh, Norwegian and international newspapers characterized it as exceptional and beautiful and stunning. Um, at, at the local level, however, uh, protests were growing. And over the following years, these protests would, would cause uh, delays after delays. Um, some of the objections, uh, the early objections to the design were based on pure uh, misunderstanding or lack of information. One was the objection from some of the affected families uh, who believed they would not have a say uh, concerning the use of victims' names on the memorial. Um, another was uh, the objection from a couple of uh, geologists who believed that uh, the ground at Sörbrotten would collapse uh, as soon as one started to cut through it. Um, protests from a wider public also showed that many people not familiar with the area uh, falsely believed that the plan was to cut through the island of Utøya itself. Um, The one objection that could not so easily be uh, disregarded um, concerned the negative impact uh, of the memorial on local inhabitants in the vicinity of Utøya, uh, some of whom had witnessed uh, the terror and taken part in the rescuing work. Um, No representatives of these uh, neighbours had been given the opportunity to uh, participate um, and bring their perspective into the process of choosing the location and the design of the National Memorial. Uh, And now some of them raised concerns uh, that the daily reminder of the terror by such a memorial would be re-traumatizing to them. Um, The local group fighting against the realization of the memorial was quite small, uh, but it argued forcefully and got a lot of media coverage, which have left many with the impression of massive resistance in Hula uh, municipality. Many of the locals did, in fact, accept and approve of the planned memorial, but some uh, were ready to take the matter to to court in order to stop it from being realized. Uh, In the end, uh, the threat of a, a legal process that would only prolong and harden the conflict led to a dramatic decision by no- the Norwegian government uh, in June 2017. Um, in order to avoid what they considered would be a tormenting and unworthy trial, they decided to scrap the, the, the planned memorial and to cancel the contracts with the artist Jonas Dahlberg uh, and the contract with the art agency, Kuru, and to start the process from scratch. Hmm. Um, so, Kristen, I want to get into the legal details of this with you, but I want to ask a quick follow-up, which is, 
um, in your, I, I believe, yet to be published in English uh, article, but you kindly gave me gave me a draft of it. You uh, and your co-authors, um, Ingun Iqdal and Shashti Lona, you discuss this idea of who is a victim and, and who has been traumatized and who, who receives um, support. And you specifically discuss um, support from the government in, in terms of money and um, and sick leave and, and such things. But how does that relate to this specific situation? Because, of course, most of the objections, um, as Ingeborg said, were from people who, who live in this area who were not directly maybe victims, but they say that they, because they helped um, victims at Utøya, they, they helped to rescue them and perhaps were witnesses, they, they feel this is very re-traumatizing for them. Um, can you just talk about that, maybe the difficulty of defining who is a victim in a situation like this? Well, I think Ingeborg did an excellent job in sort of accounting for for how memory wouldn't get cancelled. And, and I I think that the point is that from the start, the government did a very bad job of, of involving particularly the neighbors who had been extremely heroic when the Norwegian police was was dysfunctional and, and you know, not not properly doing his job to, to, to stop the terror. And they, they went out in their boats and they rescued people and they were given medals of honor. But, but they were also the group that Ingeborg discussed it. It's not an enormous group, but it's a substantial and fairly vocal group of people feeling increasingly disempowered. Um, and, and this struggle has been going on for at least seven or eight years, and it's really has over time taking its toll on, on an increasingly uh, small number of people still involved in, in resisting the memorials. So nobody has really questioned that um, the Utøya victims and uh, their parents, siblings, friends, uh, loved ones are the real victims. But there is a strong sense of, of being ignored and abused by an ungrateful government uh, that's underpinning the legal processes. So part of the reason why this dramatic moment with um, Minister Sanner uh, comes, it's because the terrorists had also sued the government for a violation of his human rights. And, and this sort of spectacle of, of having a court case against the, the terrorists, but almost at the same time meeting people who'd rescued youths in court was just not uh, seen as, as even viable and as, as deeply shameful, I would say. Uh, so what happens is that eventually, you know, from one day to another, the monument gets cancelled. Um, there's there was a 50 year lease on on uh, Wotten, which also get cancelled after a couple of years. Um, and uh, the neighbors, uh, the government also paid compensation to the neighbors for for their costs with respect to legal mobilization, such as paying for lawyers. And, and I think this is, is this, of course, wasn't they didn't really go to court this time around, uh, but they did up end in court end up in court much later, which we're going to discuss. Um, but the government has up until recently kept paying costs for the whole legal mobilization process, which, which is a very interesting observation. Um, 
but, but generally, uh, things were not resolved by by not having the monument at um, at Sobotten. Um There are also sort of smaller local histories of of people, local people wanting the monument uh, or the commemoration site to be at a place called Utsikten, which is not uh, directly located at the shore side, for example. Uh, so, so there have been contestations for a very long time, also with the government refusing to have a closer look at Utsikten. And, and then what happens after um, the cancellation of, of Memory Moon is, of course, that it gets cancelled in, in uh, Oslo as well. We still only have plans for a temporary memorial at the government quarters, and Jonas Dahlberg is, is paid a compensation. But with this, the sort of art perspective also disappears f- from the whole process. Thank you. Mm. And you have a really good quote uh, that that is in this article where you uh, are quoting in Oftenposten. Legal action and legal settlement are hopeless. A court case against the Norwegian state to stop a national memorial to 22nd of July. I can hardly imagine a sadder expression of the unity and solidarity that was praised so highly after the terrorist attack being unable to withstand the pressure from a more contradictory and petty everyday life. Uh, I thought that was very poignant. You know what? For for a legal sociologist, this is a fascinating sort of tension, right? So, I, you know, Ingeborg and I have also discussed this. But, you know, if you look at other countries, what we would like to see is that disputes end up in court. You know, that people go to court to sort of claim their rights and that ordinary people who feel disempowered and who feel that the government isn't really acting in their best interest, that they use legal remedies, lawyers, legal language. And and the neighbors have done this. Um and and the amount of scorn, I would use that strong word, the amount of scorn from official Norway has been overwhelming up until this latest round. And and I do think that that's an interesting legacy with this legal process. Yeah, and you also point out that it was, it was very um, painful as well because of the parallel to the court case uh, with Breivik in, in, at the same time when he was appealing against the Norwegian state for human rights violations. Um, and so that probably also didn't help the, I don't know, optics of, of this case. No, I mean, I, I think the optics have been terrible, but then there are also all this sort of behind the scenes conflicts and, and smaller conflicts. And and part of what makes this so incredibly difficult is this idea of a national memorial uh, that was, you know, uh, at the outset was supposed to be peaceful and discreet, but then, as Ingeborg will will just now tell us, grew to be enormous even after memory wound. Um, but, but 22nd of July is, is a national trauma, right? You know, hundreds of municipalities um, were affected in some way or another. Uh, and, you know, more than 50 municipalities in Norway lost lost kids. Or, or adults in these attacks and, and have local memor- memorials. So it, it's just very, it, it's, it's an intensely difficult uh, event to commemorate. Mm. So Ingeborg, let's now go to the next attempt uh, to have a memorial. Uh, and this was then at Utvika. And you can perhaps explain then what occurred um, after memory wound was completely scrapped? Yeah, when when the Norwegian government managed to to avoid a trial uh, in the first round over the national memorial in, in 2017, it was due to an intervention by uh, the Labour Youth League, 
and the National Support Group for the Survivors and the Victims' Families. Um, in January 2017, they uh, made a proposal to, to relocate uh, the National Memorial to the K, uh, to Utea. Um, this is an area which is owned by the Labour Youth League and which is situated only a couple of hundred metres uh, south of Söderbrotten, uh, where the first memorial was planned. Um, the government took this proposal as uh, their opportunity to, to start from scratch. And at the same time as they, they cancelled memory wound, uh, they initiated a process to establish the memorial on, on the quay. Um, this time they gave uh, Staatsbyg, the state property manager and building commissioner, uh, the responsibility of managing the process. And Staatsbyg uh, organized the process as a construction project, following their normal procedures in such matters. Um, they hired a group of architects to design both uh, the memorial and the nearby area, including a new quay and uh, a parking lot. Uh, in summer 2019, uh, plans for the memorial design uh, were, were uh, published, and this is the, the memorial which is now being built, uh, but which will probably not be inaugurated until uh, next year, next summer. Um, 77 bronze uh, columns, uh, each of them three meters high and with a name of the persons killed in the attacks will will be uh, standing in, in a curved line facing uh, Utea. Um, this design is a stark uh, contrast to the dramatic cut of the memory wound. Um, this is a quiet place, uh, suitable uh, for ceremonial acts, uh, contemplation, uh, and which refers to the events without providing uh, an interpretation, really. Um, the government expected that um, moving the memorial to the quay and, and choosing a less controversial design would ease the conflict with the neighbours. Uh, but in hearings and meetings, uh, it became clear that some of them were still opposing the project and that they now were ready to to protest against any in a national memorial in the nearby area. Uh, so and last December, they brought the case uh, to court in an attempt to, to stop the memorial from being constructed. Um, and that is uh, that is why we are, uh, are now um, uh, having the 10 the year anniversary without uh, a national memorial uh, still. Mm. Yeah, so Christina, I guess you can now give us the the legal um, summary of what's happening here. But I also just wanted you to clarify one thing, which is what do the people who are opposing these memorials want ideally? Uh, have they said what they would like to have? Do they want uh, nothing? Do they want it in a different place? Do they have a unified position? Are there different opinions? Well, you know, this is an intensely complicated question. So, um, the, U, the Labour Party youth have been at Utea since the 30s. And, and the relationship between the local population and, and, and the people visiting the island haven't always been, hasn't always been easy uh, going up and down through the years. Um, so, so there's a little bit of underlying tension there. Um, 
with the neighbors um initially you know what they wanted i think was was respect and to be heard um and, and to be treated what they held to be fairly um and and then as zingebug said the, the process around memory wound was was deeply dysfunctional um and and very much a lack of respect on the part of the government so so the, there is one specific um account of a meeting where, where the government has asked the neighbors to show up to quote-unquote participate and this is in 2007 and and 17 and and Stotsbyg, uh says you know well um we will never do anything to change uh memory mood now but you know the neighbors can if, if they are have constructive input you know they can help out with with parking and and, and deciding where you know the plants are going to be and and this was you know very shortly before the government actually you know cancelled the whole thing. Um, so so the neighbors have also complained about a lack of mapping of their psychosocial health. They've complained about not being heard. Uh, some of them have uh, business interests that have been uh, hindered by, by the plans for national memorial, and and they're frustrated about you know the lack of of helpfulness i i think um there is also a story here about the relationship between um the national government and and Stotsbyg, which has as treated uh, you know all their 22nd of july engagements as as construction processes and the local municipality hula uh, which has has literally had its hands full for a long time with the 22nd of july and and has as often seems to have been feeling very overwhelmed um and and there's no doubt that some of these residents actually you know did suffer psychological harm from the events and it, their aftermaths but um the lawyer this group this uh Ut, uh had hired back in 2017 he passed away so they ended up with with a local a sort of local lawyer um uh or bendixen is not local but um but but not someone from Oslo. Um, and, and initially, they were complaining about the regulation plans being adopted by the municipality, and and they really filed an enormous amount of, of objections with Statsbyg, with the municipality, uh, with with Fylkesmann, with literally every any single government body that would be interested in hearing them. Um, they asked for a temporary injunction last summer, and they actually got one. They won, um, but they lost an appeal um, in November 2020. And and then the court case started, and and with a brief sort of interlude, uh, it it kept uh, it it resumed in January, and then uh, the verdict came came in February, and in March the neighbors. Uh, decided that they would not appeal their loss. So so basically the the neighbors claimed that this would violate their human right to, to privacy. Uh they the they would it would uh violate their right according to the Norwegian Neighboring Properties Act. Um and and it would basically mean um and, and the lack of, of a health uh, health examination project. Helsekonsekvensutredning uh, was a fundamental fault, uh, represented a fundamental fault in, in managing the memorial. And, and the court case itself was, was just deeply unpleasant. So this is COVID-19 times. 
everything was digital. Um, I observed digitally. Uh, I could see uh, neighbors. I could see uh, relatives of people who got killed in sort of the chat line. Um, we were never many, and, and a number of journalists also observed this as well. And and then there was the physical courtroom with you know a few witnesses, the judge, and 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 the the lawyers for from each side. Um, the stories coming out of this were um, very hard to stomach, partly because people were so obviously frustrated and sad and upset about the monuments and upset about the process. Um, but but also because they, they language was used to describe the process, which seemed almost inappropriate. Um, and and uh, people described how you know they felt uncomfortable being in the neighborhood because it was overwhelmed by tourists and people who were interested in you know getting some action, seeing where it happened, asking them about their sort of personal memories from the day. Um, they were complaining about, you know, really busloads of tourists just, you know, driving in, taking pictures and, and walking on private property, um, disturbing children who were, you know, going for a swim, etc., etc. Um, on the other side, Utøya, uh, the Labour Party youth wing uh, survivors, also testified that they were deeply saddened and upset about how the memorial was delayed and, and the argument used in court. And, and in particular, I think one of the witnesses on, on the neighbor's side said that, you know, this isn't political. We're not political in our opposition to the memorial. We just want our everyday life back. And, and then a survivor from the island massacre said, you know, if this isn't political, you know, what is political? So the official Norway is, is telling us that this is an attack against us all. And, and, and you know, the neighbors are saying that this isn't political, but we can't have a monument. So, so what is this really? Um, they lost. But, but the verdict also says that going to court was legitimate. Um, that it was a good thing that they got a hearing. Um, and that the, the judge uh, understood that this was really taking a toll. On, on people living in the local area. Um, but this also seems to be the closing chapter of a long saga of, of resistance against the monuments. And I, I think we can blame the neighbors for, for choosing to go to court and thus delaying the monument. But I, I think maybe we should also blame the government for having done this so poorly. So so Statsbyg really came along and really tried to do engagement uh, once the first monument was cancelled. But but initially, it was just very mismanaged. Um, and, you know, we can say that this is something where there, we have no practice in this, luckily. You know, we don't really know how to handle a terror attack of this scale and, and kind. Um, at the same time, you know, we have over other commemoration sites in Norway. Uh, these sites are managed. They, you know, we have other conflicts and, and have resolved other conflicts historically, for example, war memorials. So I, I, I just think we, we sort of should essentially blame the government. Um, and, and I think we should be interested in, in what going to court means uh, in this process as well.
That was a really wonderful reflection. And I, I think that it's very interesting what you're saying about that it is important that they were able to go to court, um, despite how maybe painful that, that was for many different people. Now I kind of want to zoom out uh, just at the end here and talk about the bigger picture of, of the rest of Norway, because as you, I think you've both alluded to, this is a national trauma, and especially in a country that's so small, um, there are so many people who know a victim uh, or have some connection to Utøya. Um And I think for me, at least being a foreigner in Norway, that's always been a really shocking thing. If it, if it ever comes up in conversation, I've always been surprised at how often someone says uh, either that they went to the camp there previously, um, that they knew people who who died or people who were there on the day. And so this really is a national trauma in a way that maybe other countries um, wouldn't necessarily experience something like this. So Ingeborg and Kristen, you can of course comment as well if you if you want. Um, what what does it do to other people in the country? What does it do to the society that there hasn't been a physical memorial place? What is the importance of actually having a place to gather? Why is that so important to to people? And and not just in Norway, of course, but I'm sure around the world that there's a reason we find the, these gathering places. Yeah, I think that's uh, that's a that's a complex question as well. Um, um, I think the the question of of, uh, of establishing memorials, uh, national or local memorials, uh, it's it's a symbolic act to to do so. Um, uh, but I, I think it's worth mentioning that uh, there have been there has been uh, uh, established other um, uh, institutions or places uh, to to. Uh, um yeah to discuss and uh uh work through the the experiences of of 22nd July uh namely the the 22nd July center in Oslo and um a similar learning center at Utøya which is being used by uh by school classes uh um daily on daily basis so i think I think having places where you can come to uh to discuss uh and to to actually participate in in the negotiation of of uh the memory uh the negotiation of of uh how we are to um how we are to understand how we are to narrate the the events and and what it means to remember them why we should remember them uh, that's important, and I think we we do have places to to uh, to do so. But but the the symbolic in in not having managed to uh, to establish the national memorials, I think many many people in Norway think this is a sad sad story. Yeah. So for a final reflection on this, Kristen, maybe you have something to add uh, onto Ingeborg, but also I'm wondering if you can briefly compare this to other types of memorializations. I mean, my first thought, of course, being American, was 9-11, and, and that also has had its controversies. But can we f- find parallels in, in other places with other events? Well, I mean, I, I'm actually... I, I'll, I'll take the liberty to go sort of back in history. Um, so outside Bergen, there is a museum called Telavog, uh, which is a museum commemorating... Um, 
the deportation and burning of a whole village after two Gestapo men were killed uh, during the war. And, and basically the, all the women were interned and most of the women were sent off to concentration camps. And, and the museum itself says that, you know, through personal stories, you'll get an insight into the unique stories of women, children and men who experienced the worst acts of terror on Norwegian soil before July 22nd, 2011. So, so in Norway, I think there is an increasing tendency to link 2011 to the war and the type of, of atrocities imposed on the Norwegian and in particular the Jewish population. Um, and, and of course, we, we, we see this in how memorials across Norway, and, and I'm, I'll take the liberty to stick to the national context, they they have they also tell different stories. So so not where far from where I live outside Oslo, uh, there's currently a discussion going on about renaming a street. Originally, the street was renamed after a Norwegian intellectual woman who was a real feminist, Marta Stenvik, uh, but also anti-Semit. So uh, in 2019, um, the local government decided that they wanted this name. Uh, changed. Um, very few streets are named after women, so so it has been controversial. This is an area with a very high immigrant population. Uh, this year, uh, the local Labour Party representatives came up with a new suggestion of Mona Abdinur, which is, is a, one of the young women shot at Utøya from that part of Oslo. And and this, this process is still ongoing and, and it's being discussed. But but it's it's a very interesting to look at this sort of commemoration. For example, compared to things that happen when you you build a monument in, in a rural Norwegian city, where you try to build huge national monuments, or or as in Tonyam, where you've had sort of a renaming of a school after a young Jewish woman uh, who was deported and, and killed. Um, and, and all the links we make between sort of the present and the past and the future and the 22nd of July and, and what kind of society we have been and what kind of society we aspire to become. I'd, I'd like to, to pick up on the question of of, uh, of comparing the Norwegian process to, to other processes in, in other countries um, because there are several features that this process has in common uh, uh, with processes, memorial processes after terrorist attacks in in other countries, for example, uh, uh, the ones in in Oklahoma in '95, in in uh, New York uh, um, in on 9/11, uh, in Madrid in 2004, and in London in in two, 2005. Um, and one similarity is this urge <laughs> to establish public memorials quickly after the events and also the huge interest and attention that such projects uh, attract in in the public um, but an, an important similarity is also uh, the amount of conflict and disputes surrounding them um, conflicts involving neighbors is not unique to uh, the norwegian process um, however i don't know of any other case where such a conflict has uh, ended up in in the courtroom or where the, the perspective of the neighbors have had such a huge impact on the process. Um, but in any case, uh, 
protests and disputes and in processes of collective remembering should not uh, no longer come as a sur- surprise uh, and and the possibility of memorial processes developing into conflicts uh, i think must must be taken into account from the very beginning so the question is then uh, how do we manage these disputes and conflicts how do we make room for the kind of broad conversation that allow uh, allows different perspectives to be shared and and how do we ensure a sense of ownership to uh, public memorials mm. with groups and individuals who have the um have experienced the, the historical events differently and who have different reasons for remembering them mm. And and I, I really, if I can also pick up on that, um, so far of of, of right after 2011, uh, a private donor offered to fund uh, monuments to every single municipality that had lost someone, and everyone uh, accepted. So I think there are 52. Is that correcting book? 52 monuments, or similar or identical monuments around uh, in Norway commemorating. Uh, people from that municipality and and so far we only know about one instance of these monuments being desecrated in Tunsberg two years ago and and they didn't figure out who'd put a swastika on this but but so far sort of the post monument construction seems to have generated little controversy and and I think we should be grateful for this and and hopefully you know bringing something to court and and you know coming to a conclusion uh, also means that the monuments will be left in peace, you know, once they they are there with us. Um, and and I think that why a Norwegian process ends up in court, it, it's particularly because of these processes of democracy, openness, and participation, um, and because the government offers to cover the costs, right? So so it, it's it, it's the nature of our democracy that ordinary people can actually take their case to court to a certain extent um which again as, as Ingeborg notes creates creates a dilemma uh, we are going into the summer and it's 10 years and and there will be no official commemoration at the site where it all happened thank you both so much for your reflections and for talking about this topic We're going to be covering 22nd of July further on the podcast and also on the blog, and I will put some links in the description to uh, some more reading. Thank you both. Thank you. Thank you. Editing, recording, and hosting by me, Indigo Tricover. Music by Martin